0: If you would stand for the reading of Scripture, we have two passages before us. One from Deuteronomy 5.17, you shall not murder. You remember when they had you memorize Scripture, maybe when I was young, and most people like to memorize John 11, it says Jesus wept because there's only two words. Well, here's another one only has four words. You shall not murder. And then turning over to Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, beginning at verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is God's word to us. Let the one who has ears hear what the Spirit says to his people, and you may be seated. And we will also read, before we begin exposition, both of Scripture and the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 40, which is what we are looking at. Question 105, what does God require in the Sixth Commandment? Answer, that I neither in thought nor in word or look, much less in deed, revile, hate, insult, or kill my neighbor, whether by myself or by another, but lay aside all desire of revenge, moreover, that I harm not myself, nor willfully run into any danger. Wherefore, also, to restrain murder, the magistrate is armed with a sword. Question 106. But this commandment speaks only of killing, Answer, in forbidding this, however, God means to teach us that he abhors the root of murder, namely envy, hatred, anger, and desire of revenge, and that all these are in his sight hidden murder. Question 107. Is it then enough that we do not kill our neighbor in any such way? Answer, no. For in condemning envy, hatred, and anger... God requires us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to show patience, peace, meekness, mercy, and kindness towards him. And so far as we have power to prevent his hurt, also to do good even unto our enemies. One of the functions of the law is to show us who we are to show us where we need to change, to demand of us perfection. Now, that's very difficult because we know we are imperfect people. But that's exactly what Jesus said. He ended this section on the Sermon on the Mount where he takes this time after talking about being the light of the world and the salt of the earth he basically goes through the last part of the Ten Commandments and expands upon them. And then when he gets to the end, he says this in a section where he talks about love your enemies. You therefore must be perfect, you must be complete, you must be mature as your Heavenly Father is perfect, complete, mature. I mean, that's a high standard, but that's exactly the standard to which God holds us. We have to be perfect. And when we read the law, we see how imperfect we are. That's its purpose. That's one of its purposes. The other one is to show the character of God and who he is. And so as we've been looking at the Ten Commandments, we first take a look at the portrait of God. Then we take a look at the prescription and then the prohibition or we turn those two around depending upon how the catechism deals with that commandment. And this goes far beyond what we normally think about when we think about the Ten Commandments. And this is what Jesus was doing when in Sermon on the Mount he talked about the essence of loving your neighbor and or do not murder. I mean, he goes really deep and with, as we look at the catechisms, we'll see they go even deeper. And it's meant to do exactly that because it's meant to bring it home so that no one has an excuse about what it says. There's a working phrase that we're, we're dealing with, and it's on, in your outline, which is in your bulletin. The sovereign Savior creates worshipers who grow as disciples, who treat him with all reverence and respect as they gather to worship, living under God's authority, that was last week with honor your father and mother, and this week caring for others, which is you shall not murder, the sixth commandment. Let's take a look at it, the commandment, by looking first of all at the portrait of God. There you have a God who cares about His creation. Matthew 6:25 to 30, 33. Jesus has been moving even toward this point when he says, "Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you, you put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are they not more value than they? Are you not more of more value than they? And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you a little faith. And therefore, then it goes on, therefore do not be anxious. What Jesus is, is reminding us that God cares for his whole creation. He watches over it. And if God cares for his creation, how much more his people? Psalm 147, 7 to 11 and Psalm 65, 9 to 13 are two passages which accentuate what I just read from Matthew of how he does it. But there's another passage from Titus, the fourth chapter. Excuse me, third chapter, beginning at verse 1. Paul to his uh, one of his proteges, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. I mean, that sounds exactly like the 5th commandment, right? To be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What is important in this verse for us is verse 4. The goodness and loving kindness of God. That word loving kindness means people lover. It comes from a Greek word, philanthropy, fondness of mankind, benevolence. And it says that God has a fondness for human beings. He's a people lover. How far different from the Greek and Roman gods and even the gods of our own age that don't love people. They love things. They love power. They love all sorts of things. But they don't love people. They're willing to Eradicate them if they want. God is a people lover. That's because He's caring and He gives to us exactly what we need. Now, you may have wanted a nice sunny day for Palm Sunday. And there may be a few churches that normally on Palm Sunday gather outside and they give palms and you're supposed to process into the congregation. They may really have wanted a sunny day this morning. But God had better plans, and he gave us rain. Now, tomorrow ought to be Sunday, because I got yard work I got to (laughs) do. But that's, he he loves, he watches over you. He provides for you for everything you absolutely need, not maybe want, but need, because he does care so much for you. If you want to know another verse, I'm not going to read it, Psalm 23, Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And it goes through a whole litany of how he provides for us and what he does. That's the portrait of God that comes from this commandment. You shall not murder because God cares for people. And we are called to care for them as well. Second section is a prohibition of the commandment. You shall not murder. Or if you have a King James Version, it says you shall not kill. And there is a difference. There's a difference in the Hebrew words, and I wrote them down here for you. The Hebrew word in the commandment, Deuteronomy five seventeen, is Rashak, which means premeditated murder. Or maybe carelessness or negligence. But it's basically premeditated murder. There's another word that is used for kill that is used far more often than the, the word ratzak. It's harag or kala, which means to kill, to slaughter, to destroy. Have, uh, have any of you seen the movie Sergeant York? Sergeant York, he was a, um, a really uh, rebel when he was growing up and then he came to meet God. And he was drafted into World War I. And it came to the point where he's in, near the end of his training. And he was, realized, I'm going to have to be sent over to kill people. And I said, I can't do that. My Bible says you shall not kill. Because they only had the King James Version. And he went through this long personal struggle. With can he be in the army? And it finally came out. He says, yes, I can partly because I need to defend my country, but partly he began to understand that word kill was much more the word murder. And he went and he became a hero. He saved a lot of different lives, a lot of American lives and German lives by his heroic action. The word Ratzak is premeditated murder or even from carelessness or from negligence. And the, t- the difference between those two, two words gives us the difference in, in understanding the scriptures. One, a lot of people get upset because God said to Israel, eradicate the Ike clans, Canaanites, Parasites, Amorites, the whole Ike clans. I mean, this is like, okay, corral. You go after the Ike clans and you just eradicate them. Destroy them. And don't take anything, uh, don't take any person. You can have their goods, but don't take any of their persons. And people get all set. That's that's killing. He says, yeah. But it's not murder. It's killing, which God does allow in some circumstances. And when God says, you shall kill them, he's using that word harak. And it's because... Of how horrible and and their religion and what they were. He says, you either kill them now or they're, you know, I'll kill them later. And that is one of the things that deals with. Also, it's a word that helps us to understand capital punishment. You know, capital punishment comes from Noah and the end of the flood where after they have landed, God gives his instructions to Noah and his family. And he says, for your lifeblood, uh, Genesis 9, 5, for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. You can even apply this to the Ites clans because they were very diligent in shedding the blood of human beings. I mean, they, they sacrificed their children to their gods. And they were quite... Abundantly killing one another even though in some ways they were related and that's the word harak killing, murder and so even the scripture says we have a right to kill Romans 13 talks about how the government carries the sword yields the sword in order to keep peace in order to allow society to remain as a whole It's one of the reasons why we give policemen guns. And we say use them. And if your life is in danger, you have our permission to use it against the one who is endangering you. Because he's not his own person. He or she's not his own person. He represents the government. And his job is to keep the society in safeguard. That's The difference between the two makes a tremendous amount of difference. And therefore, it is used that way. But even the Old Testament had a way of talking about the killing. They had what they call the cities of refuge. And that's the Deuteronomy passage, 19, 1 to 13. Where if a person, either purposely premeditated, but especially if it was carelessness or negligence, killed somebody else, They could run to this city, which was fairly close to where they were. And they would then be safe from the rest of the family that would try to kill them. And in doing so, then they'd be able to have a fair trial. Even if they were discovered to be a manslayer, they had to stay in that city. But if they were left off, they could go home. And they were kept from revenge. So this is the way God cares for his people, as as in what they were doing. So the catechism reminds us that the idea of murder goes far beyond its physical act. Jesus brought that deeper meaning in Matthew 5, 21 to 26, to be angry with his brother. And some manuscripts as without cause, just to be angry. To in, someone who insults his brothers, use the word "raka," which is a term of abuse or call somebody a fool which is a way of saying you are godless you are not following God and in using that there's almost a degree of punishment from judgment to the council to fire of hell That they are put in. And if you don't do that. Then. Even if you come to worship. And you have not forgiven your brother. Put down your offering. Go be reconciled. And then come back. Which I mean. Which I say that between Sunday school and worship. If there's something between you and another person you'll have 15, 10 minutes to reconcile or take as much time as you need to reconcile, but don't dare come back into worship until you've been reconciled. We kind of pass that over and say, oh, grace covers a multitude of sins. Not when God tells you what to do. Now, it could be that half of you won't get back to worship, but that's more important than coming into worship without having been reconciled with your brother. And Paul makes the same admonition in his first letter to the Corinthians, the sixth chapter, where he's talking about issues that they're having with one another at the Corinthian church. In fact, most of the issues he talks about are from questions that they had in a letter that they wrote. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 6, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? And do you not know the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases... Why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brothers go to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have an insult a lawsuit at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? You yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brother. Why don't you just absorb what a brother has stolen from you if you're going to take your lawsuit into a civil court? Rather, let the judge, let the court, let the church be those who help judge and bring reconciliation and work together. That's part of the you shall not murder that's part of the depth of this commandment and so the catechism states the parameters question 105 you're not to do it in thought word much less in deed you aren't not to revile hate insult or kill nor to seek revenge nor to harm yourself or question 106 where it says abhor the hidden root of murder which is anger you want to know why you cuss at the person who cuts you off in traffic? You're angry. And anger is not a part of the Christian character. It ought not to be a part of the Christian. There is a righteous anger, being angry at things at which God is angry. But God is not angry simply because that guy cut you off. And yet it comes out in so many different ways. I like, as I read it, I, I was reminded it again that I neither in thought nor word or look or look, the way you stare at somebody after they've done something that hurts you, the way your eyeballs roll. See, That the scripture calls murder in the spirit. Now, we never think of it that way because we are such plain legalists and we only take the top meaning of the word. But when you roll your eyeballs, that's a, firm, that's a form of murder. Oh, I went from teaching to meddling, which is good. That's what the commandments are meant to do. I put into your section... Uh, The Westminster Larger Catechism that further defines in its thorough manner. That's one of the things about the Westminster Standards and Catechisms. They go even deeper. Heidelberg Catechism is much more of a pastoral. It gives an overview. Westminster Catechisms go deep. Think about this. What does it forbid? Taking our own or anyone else's life except in the pursuit of public justice, lawful war, or necessary defense? Neglecting or withholding the necessary means for the preservation of life. That is not giving medication. Or giving something that will kill a person. We call it euthanasia, don't we? Sinful anger, hatred, envy, or desire for revenge. All excessive emotions and distracting anxieties. Intemperate eating, drinking, working, or playing, speaking in a provocative way, oppressing, quarreling with hitting or wounding others, and anything else conductive to the destruction of anyone's life. Man, take a look at that and apply it to your own life and you're going, oh man, I can't go through one day without murdering. At least in my heart and in my spirit. Yeah. <laughs> That's why one of us is really working and having a diet. Because it says of uh, intemperate eating, drinking, and working. Can you imagine that? We're intemperate working, doing 80 hours a week when we're only called to do 60. Ooh, that's murder of your own self. Working seven days a week instead of taking one day rest, that's a murder of your own self. You're killing yourself. There's only so long you can do that until you begin to implode. And you lose it. And you can go mental on that. First John 2, verse 9. No, excuse me. Well, that would help. I'm in First Peter. That's why it doesn't look right. First Peter, John, uh, First John, <laughs> chapter two, verse nine. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and works in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. You wonders why sometimes you don't get an answer from God. Because you're living in darkness. Because you're angry at a brother. Or you have murder in the spirit. You say, Lord, show me, show me. And he goes, yeah, as soon as you get out of the darkness, everything will, make, will, will be light. And you'll see what you have to do. That's what this commandment says. And you read that, and you think about that, and you, re- you realize how deep your sin really goes. And why you need a Savior. Thirdly, it's a prescription of the commandment. It's more than refraining from the negative. We are called to accentuate the helpful with other people. Question one o seven tells us we're to love our neighbor by showing patience, peace, humility—that's meekness in the in the uh, catechism—mercy and kindness by preventing their hurt and doing good to them, even our enemies doing good to them even our enemies notice what that says that we are to be people who preserve life no matter what the cost is to us think about what's happening in our culture think about what's taking place a couple states in the United States pass laws that not only can you have abortion up to the moment of, of birth, but they will even allow you some time after birth to kill the child. How hideous is that? Or they say, if a, if a child is born, the parents have up to two days to decide whether or not they want to keep the child. And if not, they'll just simply let it starve. How hideous and horrendous that is. And the Christian church is called to deal with it. Now, it's almost like Wilberforce with slavery, where he dealt with it incrementally. He dealt with it by showing to people how horrendous slavery was. He took them by the slave ships, and as you rode by, the stench was so overwhelming that they had to put handkerchiefs over their nose to be able to breathe. Or he showed them the back of slaves that had been whipped and scourged. But even that was not enough for him. He was not satisfied until slavery was absolutely abolished in his country. Why? You shall not murder. In fact, you go to the other extreme. That's why adoption and foster care and Christian families taking in other children has always been a key mark of the church. First century, they didn't abort. They simply took a child they didn't want, put him on the garbage heap, and the Christians would go out, and they'd pick up that child, and they'd take him into their family. There was dirt poor to begin with, because Christians didn't have very good jobs. And they'd have 10 to 12 children, maybe only two their own, but the others were from the garbage heap. And they were the ones who were taking care of them. And they were known for their love, for their caring, for their helpfulness. So why is it in the church we're satisfied with two children and no more? And we don't want to go to the place of foster care and adopting children. This is one of the things that drove Peg and I to adopt three children, when we already had four, and that on a preacher's salary, which was never really great, but we decided we had to help 25,000 kids in foster care, and we could not stand back. When it came for time of, of adoption, we adopted them. Was it easy? No. It was some of the worst times of our life. And anyone who knows anything about adoption knows that, but it was the right thing to do. If some if you might say that was our suffering for Christ, that was our going through persecution. But that's what it is to be helpful. Galatians 6 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. One church I pastored, we had a young teenager who got pregnant. And the family was devastated, but the church decided we are going to come around that young lady and we will support her. And we will support her all through the pregnancy and the birth. And if she decides to keep the child, we will continue to support her. We will give of our own capital, of our own time and resources to help her. And when she finally had the child, she decided to put it up for adoption and we had a party for the adoption. Not only to celebrate that gift but to celebrate her desire not to give up on the child. That's Christianity. That's being a person who does not murder. That's the deeper part. Again, the Westminster Larger Catechism, what does the Sixth Command require? To do our best in every effort, lawful effort to preserve our own life and the lives of others. We do this by not thinking about or planning, by controlling our emotions, and by avoiding all opportunities, temptations, and actions that would promote or lead to the unjust taking of someone's life. You know, the moment you are ready to say to someone, why don't you take a long walk off a short pier? That's a form of murder. And you capture that thought before it really enters into your mind. The moment you want to give somebody your index finger, you pull it back because that's a form of murder according to the commandments. Uh, In the pursuit of that goal, we must defend others from violence, patiently enduring the afflictions from God's hand, have a quiet mind and a cheerful spirit, practice temperance in the way we eat, drink and take medications, sleep, walk and pray, We should also harbor charitable thoughts, loves, compassion, meekness, gentleness, and kindness. Our speech and behavior should be peaceful, mild, and courteous. We should be tolerant of others, ready to reconcile, patiently put up with and forgiving injuries against us and return good for evil. Finally, we should provide aid and comfort to those in distress as well as protect and defend the innocent. Remember Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, love keeps no record of wrongs. There was a counselor to whom came a couple who were already on the verge of divorce. And as they came in and sat down, he looked at the wife, and the wife had a three-inch notebook filled to overflowing back in front of all those pages of eight and a half by 11 paper were all the things her husband had done wrong, as she considered it. And he says, I know your problem. <laughs> you aren't bearing. You aren't forgiving. You, aren't, you carry this burden of how much that person. And in, in essence, that notebook was like a knife or a gun murdering their marriage and wanting the spouse to be murdered. Well, we may not have it as a three-inch notebook. We may put it on our Facebook (laughs) for the whole world to see. (laughs) Or we at least keep it up here. And when we are really upset, we replay. And we think about it over and over and over. And you wonder why people have problems with relationships and life. Because up here is a spirit of murder that keeps going and going and going. Hmm. I wonder if I'm talking to anyone here about that. Because that's exactly what the commandment is meant to do. It's like a heat-seeking missile. It comes flying in and it, it gets, sees where the, hot, the hotness is and goes right after it. And nothing can deter it from reaching its mark. Positively, we are called to do everything we can to help another person. And the Lord has bound us together by a certain unity. That's what makes this commandment work. Therefore, we ought to be concerned with the safety of others and counter all violence, injury, and harm's forbidden in the commandment. Again, I go back to driving because I do it so much and I see it. That's why you're very careful when you drive. You know, a year, year, 14, 15 months ago, my wife was in an accident because the guy driving the truck was not careful. Car in front of him, to which he was too close, suddenly stopped. And instead of veering to the right, to the ditch, he did the left and hit my my, uh, Peg's car. She still suffers from it. He was careless. But in a sense, that was a form of murder. It wasn't, she died, for which we are grateful. Well, she is. No, no, for for which we are grateful. But, that carelessness in driving. Same thing with you. If you don't keep your car mechanically sound, That could be a form of murder. Ooh, because someday you may have an accident that causes something like that. Or you may kill yourself or hurt yourself. You see how far reaching this goes? And yet we are called to do it because there's a unit. We're all in the image of God, even the person who's your enemy. Even the Muslims who bombed the Twin Towers have the image of God within them. And we are, hold, we are called to hold in sacred reverence that image that God has placed within each and every one of us and to embrace the same nature that we all have. That's why racism is so horrible. It's a form of murder. Murder. By saying to someone, because of your skin color or because of your background or the nation from which you came, you're an inferior person, is to denigrate the image of God. And it is saying, we wish you weren't here. We wish you would die. Murder in the spirit. It goes really deep. You see how much the American culture is really a culture of death? Not only in actually killing preborns, postborns I dare not talk about euthanasia because I'm too close to it. But we have, within our culture, this idea that others are worthless, and only we are worth worthy of having life. And we show it in a variety of ways. The conclusion I've talked, I've already talked about most of the uh, items here. You do know that we are living on borrowed capital in America. Capital of our forefathers was built on Christian principles. And the reason why we have hospitals, think about even the hospitals in Dayton and how many come from churches, religious organizations. Why? Because we wanted to help people. Positive aspect of this commandment adoption foster care courts and demanding justice and not the wild west that if you caught somebody you just strung them up because you thought they were guilty i watch too many westerns how about video games where we are teaching our young how to kill and desensitizing them to the whole effect of killing. Because you kill and you get killed and you reboot it and you're back alive. And so if you go into an elementary school and you kill these kids, oh, they're just going to come back alive after, after we're done. How much have we desensitized ourselves and our younger generation? Or this generation, or my generation, to the whole thing. I mean, at least when Bugs Bunny beat up Elmer Fudd, we knew it was a cartoon. But the video games are so real that it's almost reality itself. And this brings me to the last point. The deeper needs of this commandment declare that we cannot do this commandment in and of ourselves. And we need two things if we are going to fulfill not only this commandment, but I could have said this for any other commandment. It just hit me this week as I was thinking about it. One, we need to be recreated by the Holy Spirit. Because all that we see taking place is simply the old nature Galatians 5, verse 19. The works of the flesh are evident. And I call them, they call works of the flesh. I, I like to say it. The fruit of the flesh is evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. All we see in our society is the old nature coming out. All you see in yourself is the old nature coming out. And unless you've been recreated by the Holy Spirit, you have only that old nature, and it will continue to come out To be recreated by the Holy Spirit is to be given a new nature. Behold, the old is gone, but the new has come. And only that new nature will be able to do what you need to do. For the fruit of the Spirit, verse 22, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, Self control against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. We need to be recreated, to be born from above, as Paul, as John, excuse me, Jesus would say to Nicodemus, you need a new life. So the question is, quite frankly, do you have the new life? Or or do you only have a facade because it's acceptable here and in other places? But when you really look at your life in light of that commandment, you shall not murder, you say, man, that's all I want to do. That's my very basic nature. Or on the other side, do you love Christ so much that you don't want to do it and you stay away from it? You stand back from it. That's the first one. The second one is we, is we need to be empowered by the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, Paul says, let us also walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. To be empowered, to, to have the power to overcome and be transformed And that doesn't come from inside of us. Even with a new nature, our own power is not enough to counteract and to build it. You need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit so that he can then begin to produce his fruit into you more and more and more and more. That you may go, as Paul says to the Corinthians in his second letter, from one degree of glory unto the next. And we think, well, all I need to do is be born again or uh, recreated by the Spirit. That's not enough. Because you still don't have the power to fulfill what the commandment tells you to do. You need to have the release of the Spirit in your life. To be empowered by the Spirit above all else. And then the question is, have you been so? Are you living in his power, or are you trying to live in your own power? Are you satisfied with just being born again when he has so much more for you to be able to do what he calls you to do? Now, we have been recreated and empowered to obey the will of God, to counter the desire to murder in whatever form it may be, and to live a life of helping ourselves in one another, to the cause. And that means you're first recreated, you're second, you're empowered by the Holy Spirit. If you don't have either one of those, don't get coffee. Coffee will only give you a momentary buzz. It will not solve the problem. Sit before Jesus. Ask him to change you. Ask Him to send His Spirit to you. Ask Him, as He said, ask the Father and He will give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. Ask Him to empower you with the Holy Spirit so that you can live as becomes a follower of Christ. And then you will begin to obey. You shall not murder. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we call it by different names, but it's the same thing. Whether it's the baptism of the Spirit, the release of the Spirit, the empowerment of the Spirit, whether it's to be born again or recreated or a new creation, all of it is the same. Father, we ask in this sacred moment that you would come upon us there's any here, O Lord, who who have not been recreated, who are still wallowing in their old nature and, and around and being people who do not know you, that you would come and reveal yourself to them, change their heart, transform their very nature into the nature that you have. Grant to them to become a child of God. And if they're for those here who are your children, Father, help them to see it's not enough simply to be born again. And therefore, O Lord, empower us. Send your Holy Spirit. We ask it that you would send the gift from above to us, not for our own sake, but for the sake that we may glorify you and build the kingdom and show a world there's a far better way than murder and murder in the spirit. There's a way of living for you that goes way beyond what anything anybody pretends to do. And we are called to be your people. For without it, Lord, we just flail. We just tread water. And you have called us to swim into the deepest part of the pool. Therefore, O Lord, come. Come, Holy Spirit. Anoint your people so that they may be your people. In the precious name of Jesus, we ask it. And all of God's people said, amen.